0: Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church this morning as we continue our series in the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter was written by the Apostle Peter around 65 AD to a group of suffering Christians in Asia Minor, what we know today as modern-day Turkey, and the theme of this series in the book of 1 Peter is living as suffering saints for God's promised glory. Living as suffering saints for God's promised glory. And so we're dropping in now to verses six through nine this morning in our series. So if you've got your Bible, turn to First Peter, chapter one, verses six through nine. So if you go to the end of your Bible, you'll find the book of Revelation. Right before that is the tiny letter of Jude. Right before that are the letters of first, second and third John, and then right before that is first Second Peter. So go to 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 9. And the title of this morning's message is rejoicing and suffering. Rejoicing and suffering. Now let me ask you a question as you're turning to your text. Are you suffering? And when I say are you suffering, I mean anything from the fear of physical illness or harm to Real defeat in some personal goals or areas in your life. Maybe you're suffering some significant relational conflict, some brokenness in your relationships. Maybe things aren't going very well at work or at school. Maybe right now you are simply failing at something you'd love to succeed in. Perhaps there are things that aren't happening that you would like to happen. Or things that are happening that you would wish would stop immediately. Are you suffering? And if you are, and most of us are, then typically the question that comes into our minds when we suffer, they they center around God. Even those who don't know God ask that question. Uh, I'm reminded of last December. Do you remember the shooting in San Bernardino, California? Fourteen were killed last December. Even the New York Daily News which is hardly a bastion of Christianity, had a front page article. And what was written in block letters on that front page article, God isn't fixing this. Now they were responding to the Paris tragedies and, and all that's happening. God isn't fixing this. This one person once said, there are no atheists in foxholes. And when you are metaphorically speaking in a foxhole in your life, the bombs are dropping around you. Things aren't going well, even if you are an atheist, you're typically gonna have some questions for God, aren't you? Or accusations of God, or some commentary about God. It's those questions that God answers in the letter of First Peter. You understand that? The, the, the context of First Peter is to a church in the mid-60s A.D. that's suffering under persecution. Minimally, and some of you may be suffering this way, financial stress and strain. You can't pay the bills. You're going to go home today, and it's February 7th, but you're almost out of money. What are you going to do for the, for the other you know, 21 days of February? Or I guess this year, 22 days of February. You're suffering. And so Peter, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing to you. Actually, he was writing to the first century Christians, but that word comes down to us in the 21st century, and he writes to us about God, the questions about God when we're suffering. So let's read God's answer to our questions about him, when we suffer. First Peter, chapter one, verses six through nine. In this you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 identifies the tension we all live with, doesn't it? Look at it. Paul's writing to these Christians in Asia Minor. He's writing from Rome. These Christians live in modern day Turkey, about 12 to 1500 miles away. And he starts off by saying this In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There it is, folks. There's the tension, right? One moment you're rejoicing, the next moment you are grieved by some trial. Now we need to kind of identify. What he is talking about here when he's saying, rejoice in this and various trials. So, to review from last week briefly, when he says, in this, you see that word in verse six? The this that he's talking about, it's pointing back to verses five, uh, three through five. It's the living hope we have in Christ, it, it is the inheritance that is being kept for us in heaven. It is the salvation that God, by his power, keeps us for. That's the thing that they're rejoicing in. And then the various trials are the things that we experience in a fallen world. When people hurt us, when people disappoint us, or when we disappoint people that we'd like to serve. When when the bills aren't paid, when when the traffic jam occurs, when you get the phone call from your wife or your husband or your kids and say, hey, I just got the report from the doctor. Or something just happened at work, or I just lost my job, or the thing you were hoping for doesn't come through. That's the the various trials there. So I rejoice in my future hope in Christ. I'm saved. But for a little while... I'm grieving over this thing. That's that tension. This is how some theologians describe that tension. They they describe it as the already not yet. The already not yet. What do I mean by that? If you are a Christian this morning, you already have salvation. You already have been given righteousness. You already have the main problem in your life resolved, and that is that your sin deserves God's wrath. Jesus took it for you, and you already have that. The fancy term in theology for that is justification. So the Bible says it this way, I have been saved. And if you're a Christian, you have that. And if you're not a Christian this morning, may I appeal to you, as you listen to this message, and as you hear the gospel being preached, uh, repent and believe. God will show you, you're going to hear a lot about Jesus this morning and what he did for you, but repent and believe. But if you're a Christian, which is the majority here, you already have salvation, but the Bible also says we are being saved. What is that all about, Al? That is that season we're in right now where I have the righteousness of Christ, and yet Christ is changing me to be more like him, where I have this hope that God has given me of heaven, but I'm living in a very fallen world. That fallen world could deliver you here as a married couple in major <clears throat> strife. You could have argued all the way here in the car, put on the little smiles we all put on when we walk into the church, and as soon as you're done hearing this fine sermon, you will get back in the car and you will argue all the way home. <laughs> Welcome to the already? Not yet. Okay? Okay? You are being saved. The power of God is on us to help us. Thank you for being here to hear this sermon. Hopefully this will help you not argue quite as vehemently when you drive home. And there will be humility in your hearts. Okay? All right, that's that part. And the Bible says we will be saved. What is that? I thought I was saved. You are justified. Point in time. I, I'm being saved. You are. You're being changed into the image of God. But you will be saved. Because see, the Bible says there's still something left to come. This is what Peter talked about last week. There's this glory to come. This this body that you've been given. For some of you, that body breaks down. You've lived for years with suffering and, and brokenness. But one day, you're going to have a glorified body. Jesus Jesus is going to return one day, and your body is going to be perfect, and you're going to live forever in that body. Whoo! Yes! Thank you, Lord! That's the hope that they're rejoicing in in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. In this... I have been saved, I am being saved, I will be saved. In this I rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But in the midst of that glorious news I just gave you, you still get sick. You got a sore throat. You're going to get a flat tire when you drive home today. I'm not prophesying that. Or you have the trifecta. You feel the sore throat coming while you're arguing with your spouse and you run over a nail. Bam! Your tire goes flat. And we drive by you guys on the highway. And you say, hey! You know, there are other serious things that we could be talking about here right now, right? You lose your job tomorrow. The, the doctor tells you that the blood work doesn't look good. Your child gets injured. When that happens, the already not yet, when it hits you, what are you going to do Typically? you're going to start asking questions. And of whom do you ask those questions? As a Christian, you're going to ask them of God. Even non-Christians do. And that leads us to our first point. Because see, the question that comes tumbling out of our grieving heart is this. Where is God when trials come? Where is He? I'd like to know. Because I'm suffering right now. This isn't a flat tire in a, in a little... A little Conflict with someone on the way home from church. This is some serious, mind-numbing, life-altering, depressing news. This is a chronic issue of my life that I can't get over. No one knows that I'm sitting in this pew, I'm sitting in this chair, and I've got some serious problems in my life. I am desperate. Where are you, God, when these trials come? And here's the answer from Scripture. is what God says to you. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you because here's the truth. You ready? Here comes the gospel. Jesus came as a man and he suffered more than any human being will ever suffer, has ever suffered. Jesus suffered for you. He left glory willingly where there were no problems. And he came as a little baby, a baby. Talk about humility. And he grew up perfect as a a man, and then he, he went to a cross and he suffered for you. He hung naked and broken and beaten, and he took the wrath of God that you deserve. And so, when you're crying out, when the tears are stinging your eyes, and you're saying, Where are you? Where are you? He's saying, I'm right there with you. I've experienced it. See, this is the point of this message. And he's saying, that's my way. Suffering precedes glory. Well, look at the text here on the screen. Luke 24, 26 says the following. This is speaking of Christ. Luke 24, 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, that's the point of the book of 1 Peter. Suffering precedes glory. I want the glory. I don't want the suffering. But in the midst of the suffering, Jesus says, I'm right there with you. I know what you're going through. I suffered for you. Listen, here's the good news in the midst of our suffering. It's all by God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign plan was to put his son to death. To reject his son, to pour his wrath out on his son. That was his sovereign plan. And God's sovereign plan in redemption leads to our joy. I mean, we've got to start here. This is what I want to remind you of. Jesus' suffering. Because of Jesus' grief, we have joy. We're back to that this word in verse 6. In this you rejoice. In what do I rejoice? In the fact that Jesus suffered for me. In the fact that he was grieved for me. So that I can have hope of heaven. I can have hope. But someone had to suffer. For me to have that hope. And that was Jesus. And he suffered according to God's plan. His sovereign plan. Now here's the part of the sermon that's hard to preach. I, I was studying this on Wednesday night before community group. And when I was studying it, I was just stunned. In fact, I was late for community group. I, people were coming over to community group. I'm still studying it. You know, I'm in my, you know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just floored by this. <laughs> Though God is not the author of evil and never will be, never has been. Though God tempts no one, God uses evil. To bring good in your life. God will allow trials in your life. And serious trials. To work a greater glory in your life. Now that sounds good right now. But when you're going through the trial. When you're laying in the hospital bed. When you're in the unemployment line. When you've got relational strife. You just want to say, God, why? Why? Where are you? But he's got a greater good that he's, that he's working in you. And, and this, listen, listen, just as Jesus suffered according to God's sovereign plan, so we, his followers, will suffer according to God's sovereign plan. I know, I know, I know. This, this isn't. This, ow. As one of my children used to say, owie, owie, owie. But it's true, it's true. Now, every illustration is going to fail in this, but I'm going to try, okay? And I apologize beforehand. I tried to get a less Neanderthal, either war or football illustration, and I just couldn't, all right? So, ladies, I'm trying. I really am. I'm I'm, going to get there one day. Just bear with me. But it is Super Bowl Sunday. And so tonight, One team will be crowned as the Super Bowl champions with all the attendant glory and riches. But now put yourself in that team's place last August when they reported for training camp in the sweltering heat of either Denver or Charlotte. And put yourself in the place of some of the star players or or any player as the coach is running them through two-a-day practices in the sweltering heat. And the coaches, one is named Ron Rivera, who played football in the NFL, so he knows what it's like, again, Think about Christ and what's happening with us. The other one is Gary Kubiak. He knows what it's like. He played for the Broncos, actually, in the Super Bowl as a quarterback, a backup quarterback. So those coaches are blowing the whistle. They're saying, run, run, hit harder, run. And you're just sitting on the field, and you're throwing up on the field, and the sweat's pouring, your eyes are stinging, and you're thinking, this guy's trying to kill me. But that coach is doing that because in August, he's thinking of today. He's thinking of the fourth quarter of the game tonight, somewhere around 10 o'clock, I don't know, whenever the fourth quarter is, and your team is tied, and everybody's tired, or a soccer match, and everybody wants to quit, and you've got superior conditioning because he worked in you something through all those trials and all that training, so in the fourth quarter, you got that extra step and that extra reach, and you catch that touchdown, and your team wins, and there's glory. Man, the glory we're talking about here is far greater than any Super Bowl victory. And though at times we would think the coach is trying to kill us, he's not. Or we say, coach, stop. Can we take a break today? Do we have to work this hard? You know, we want to say that to God. Where are you? But like those two coaches, Jesus knows what it is to suffer. Those guys both played football. Rivera was a linebacker for the Bears. Kubiak a quarterback. They know what it's like, but they also see the end. They see the glory to come. That's what God, that's the message here in in this book. And look, there's one more message. One more message. The one who wept for you records every one of your tears. Not one of them is wasted. Look at the text on the screen. Psalm 56, verse 8. David wrote this of God. When David was captured by the Philistines when he was fleeing Saul. David was in a bad place. He had the promise of God. He was on the run. The most powerful man in the world was trying to kill him, King Saul. And he penned this psalm for you and me. You, God, have kept count of my tossings, grievings, waking up in the middle of the night, my worries. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Every one of your tears is precious to the one who wept over you. Every one. Not one is wasted. So he, he works in us. He's right next to us in the middle of his tear, of, of our trials. But then we ask ourselves, okay, Al, I get that. I get that. I, I understand that. that. That helps me. But how in the world can I rejoice? This is saying I rejoice in the midst of my trials. And that's point two. How can we rejoice in the midst of our trials? Look at verse six again with me. It says, In this you rejoice, though, comma, though, now for a little while, now for a little while, compared to eternity, our trials, even if we suffer all our lives, it's a little while compared to eternity. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, you mean there's an option? Hello. You mean there's an option? Yes. No, excuse me. Sorry, I got distracted. (laughs) Get that thing out of here. (laughs) It says there if necessary. Oh, well, so maybe it's not necessary. Actually, you'd be in very good company if you asked that question. Because you know who asked that question? Jesus in the garden. He never sinned. That question is not sin. He said, Father, is there any other way? And then he quickly said, not my will, but your will, Lord. So it says, it, it, if necessary, oh, it's necessary. <laughs> I'm saying it with a smile as you throw your Bibles at me. It is necessary. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So we've got to ask ourselves two questions. Subpoint A here. We've got to understand the purpose of our trials, because it is necessary. And we've got to understand the nature of our faith. The purpose of our trials and the nature of our faith. Look at verse 7. They're going to give us a peek and help us understand those two key elements we have to understand to be able to walk through trials with some measure of joy. Verse 7. So that, you see that? So, if necessary, it is necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, oh, so that, you see that those two words, so that, in verse 7, circle those, underline them, so that, here's the reason, this is the, the reason for our trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the Super Bowl. There's the confetti coming down. When Jesus returns, praise and glory and honor. But in between now and then, the so that is that the genuineness of my faith needs to be tested. Because on that day, what's going to be revealed is praise and glory and honor at the coming of Jesus. So what's Paul mean by that? What in the world is Paul saying when he's saying... Your faith needs to be tested, or the genuineness of your faith needs to be tested, and your faith is more precious than gold. All right, let's start with the metaphor, and we'll work backward, okay? All right, so Paul here, or Peter, excuse me, Peter here is likening our faith to gold, all right? You see that? That's a metaphor. Okay, so he's saying that our faith must be tested as to its genuineness. Our faith must be tested as to its genuineness and that our faith is more precious than gold because gold perishes, though it's tested by fire, and our faith does not perish. So, so here's the point. Here's the point. If gold is tested as to its, its value, its genuineness by fire, our faith is tested as to its genuineness by trials. And because our faith leads to glory, it is God's kindness that He allows trials to come to test our faith as to its genuineness. And the scripture that immediately comes to mind is 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18. It's one of my favorite scriptures. This scripture is the basis of the song that we sang, There is a Day. And we're going to sing it again at the end of the sermon. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 says this. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. So that's trials preparing us for the glory. This is now the Apostle Paul writing. Peter and Paul are saying the same thing because the Holy Spirit is inspiring them both. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, Those are the trials. But to the things that are unseen, that's our Lord Jesus. We don't see him, do we, with our physical eyes? The temptation is to look at what you can see. This text is saying we look at the unseen things. But we look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So here's the point our faith is more precious than gold because gold is transient. Trials are transient, they're temporary. Even if they're for your lifetime compared to eternity, they're transient. But faith is eternal. These three things abide faith, hope, and love. These are the things of life, not your possessions. Not your position, not your status, not your reputation. No, no, faith, hope, and love. And the most precious one there in in this text here is the faith because God wants to test the genuineness of my faith. What do you mean, Al? That my trials prove whether I have faith? No, sir. No, ma'am. No, no, because now we've got to go to the idea of how is gold tested You see that at the end of verse 7, or in the middle of verse 7? More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What's the process by which gold is tested by fire? Why is that process? Well, here's the deal. First of all, gold is precious, all right? Do you know how much gold is worth? As of Friday, one ounce of gold. What's an ounce of gold, you might be wondering? Three and a half french fries. All right, so go to McDonald's today. Don't eat the food. Just order some French fries. Grab, I'm just joking. If anybody works at McDonald's, love McDonald's. I love, I love a Big Mac. It's one of my favorite burgers. (laughs) Lots of ketchup on it. Okay. Not good for you, though. Um, Get three and a half fries. That's an ounce. Do you know how much three and a half fries of gold are worth as of Friday? $1,158.40. Not bad, huh? $1,158.40. Since 2010, gold has not dipped below $1,000 an ounce. Pretty precious, right? Faith is a lot more precious. Why? Because that is temporary. But listen, to get that gold that is pure enough to pay over $1,000 for, you know what they have to do to it? They have to heat it by fire. The the heat that purifies gold, that causes all the impurities to bubble up, You don't heat it to prove that it's gold. You heat it to purify the gold. So the testing, the genuineness of your faith isn't to prove that you have faith. It's to purify your faith. You know how much heat it takes to purify gold? 1,842 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a picture up here that I found on the Internet. Yeah, that's pretty hot. Those guys are wearing like asbestos suits, all right? Probably even asbestos underwear. Maybe even asbestos contacts. And it's hot. That's the trials. You got that? Trials don't prove that you have faith. Trials purify your faith. Trial, listen, that heat doesn't destroy the gold. It purifies it. Trials don't destroy your faith. It purifies it. And if your faith is worth more than anything else and brings praise and glory and honor so that at the fourth quarter, when the last second ticks, you've got the confetti coming down on your head. The other guy's walking with shame into the locker room. You're receiving all the riches, all the endorsements, all the commercials, whatever it is you fantasize. That's what faith produces. It's a faith born from God. I didn't produce it. It's a faith sustained by the power of God. But that is what God is doing through those trials. He's purifying the most precious thing in your life. Our faith is proved as genuine at the coming of Jesus. You see that at the end of verse 7? At the end of verse 7, we kind of transition. So that faith uh, receives, we receive praise and glory and honor. I'm not exactly sure what that means, whether... When it says there at the end of verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. It says our faith is going to be found. I'm pausing for the person interpreting because I always forget he's interpreting back there. So I'm pausing so he can rest. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor. I'm not sure if that means our faith results in God receiving praise and glory and honor or if it means us receiving praise and glory and honor. I'll pull a Tim Keller. There's a third option. Both. Think about it. God birthed the faith in you. God sustains the faith in you. And so at his coming, all those that are worshiping him in in, in glorious faith bring praise and glory and honor to him. But here's the truth of scripture. Though it is God's praise, he chooses to share it with us. Though it is God's honor, he chooses to share it with us at the judgment, the last judgment. Though it is God's glory, he chooses to share it with us. Jesus said that. They're going to experience the glory that I have with you, Father, at my coming. So it's his glory, his praise, and his honor. But on that last day, he's going to choose to share it with those of us that walk by faith. A faith that he gave us and that he sustains in us. That's why it's all by grace. Isn't that amazing? Trials. Purify that faith. Trials purify that faith. And one with genuine faith looks to Jesus. You want to know how you rejoice in your trials? You understand the purpose of our trials. You understand the nature of our faith. And you look to Jesus, our living hope. You look to Jesus, our living hope. I I love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We preached through Hebrews recently. Actually, not recently. But in my mind, it was recently. And... uh, We preach through Hebrews, and Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says the following on the screen. Therefore, 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 since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those are the saints, those are the believers that have died and they're in heaven waiting, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, like a marathon and you're suffering. Let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. He founded it. He gave it to us. He perfects us. And the way he perfects it is through trials. Who for the joy that was set before him. Endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But he perfected it. He led the way in how it's perfected. He suffered before we suffered. And he received the glory. And he's saying that's the same path I've got for you. And, and I'll, I'll take you through it, because I endured it, and I overcame. <sighs> Friends, that's a, that's a comfort, because you know what? When it says here, despising the shame, it, it, it's shameful to suffer, isn't it? It's shameful. When someone sins against you, when someone when you lose your job, when, when you don't have enough, when you have too much, whatever. When, when you suffer, it's shameful, you, right? I don't know about you, but me, it just... I feel ashamed and then I alternate. I feel angry and then I feel ashamed and then angry and angry that I'm ashamed and ashamed that I'm angry. And, you know, uh, I think, Lord, why can't can you just perfect my faith some other way? God said, no. But what sustains me during that suffering is I look at the joy that's on the other side of the shame. And it's there. I look at the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. I look at the grace of God in my life. Because that's what Jesus did. You see, we've got this paradox working here. Look at verse 8. Here's the paradox. Peter is bringing us home in the text. He says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now think about this for a second. Peter physically saw Jesus. But what does he say here? He's writing to people in Turkey who never saw Jesus physically. And he said, though you haven't seen him, you love him. He's writing to us too. Though you haven't seen him, you believe in him. But you know what Peter is saying to them? It's not the fact that I saw Jesus physically that enables me to love him and believe in him. Because there were tons of people that saw Jesus physically that did not believe in him and did not love with him. They crucified him. It was God revealing to Peter spiritually who Jesus is. The world says seeing is believing. God says believing is seeing. and He gives us the believing. And he said, blessed are you. You do not see him, but you love him and you believe in him. Based upon the eyewitness account of Peter. Based upon the very precious word of God that I'm preaching. That's why we sit here and listen to sermons. That's why you study the Bible. We have a hope. We have a joy that goes beyond the shame. We live in a future that is present already. But which will be realized in all its fullness at the coming Of Jesus, that's verse 9. The salvation of our souls. Don't read soul as some disembodied part of you. There, they're saying yes, of course. There, it's saying souls is everything you are. That's what that word says. The salvation of all that we are is in Christ. At his coming. We get a taste of it now. And amidst all the distractions of this world. (laughs) And the craziness. We've got a hope that looks beyond the shame of the suffering and the trial at the joy. It's a joy inexpressible. I can't express it to you because it's it's an invisible joy. But it's it's the most important joy. It's not based on what I see with my eyes or whether tomorrow I go into work and my boss no longer is mad at me. Whether I can can resolve this problem in my life. Some problems aren't going to be resolved in this life. Some relationships won't be reconciled. I've come to terms with that. And it grieves me. But there is a joy that looks beyond that grief. And says, I trust you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you would give a vision to everybody in this auditorium of the glory that is to come. If they do not know you, would you open their eyes to their need for you, Jesus? And they would repent and believe in you as their savior. And your death on the cross would suddenly have a significance for them beyond the crucifix that may be around their neck. And it would move their souls, give them life. If that's you, just take a moment, do business with God. Lord, for the vast majority of us, we're just asking, where are you? Lord, remind us, you're right there. You actually led the way. Suffering more than we ever could. And Lord, when we ask how can we rejoice, Lord, show us the the, the reason for our trials. Let us have wisdom, Lord, and not despise the trials, but actually thank you for the trials. And let us see the nature of our faith more precious than gold. And Lord, lift our heads to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, my heads bow today. talking to myself things I shouldn't be saying. I, I need to listen to what Corey said earlier. I need to hear other people tell me, oh soul, hope in God. I need to tell myself, oh soul, hope in God. Everything you are, hope in God. For you've given me a hope that goes beyond the grave. Lord, I pray this and I pray as we stand to worship you that this would occur. You by your spirit would build us now. Give us hope. Give hope to the hopeless. I pray in Jesus' name. Let us sing, as Corey said earlier, and remind ourselves and one another of the hope we have in Christ. Let's sing, There is a Day.